You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. To celebrate, I'm drinking cheap sparkling wine in my pajamas, just like I've been doing for the past 11 months. It's gotten me this far into a worldwide pandemic, so why stop now? This week on the podcast, we're covering the life and loves of another figurehead of the golden age of Hollywood, whose iconic public image as a dumb blonde impeded her growth within her own field. Born Norma Jean Mortensen, this troubled young woman would be transformed into Marilyn Monroe, her image synonymous with the Hollywood dream she so passionately chased. This week, we're covering the life of Marilyn and the loves she found along the way. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. They used to uh, take me to um, movies here in Hollywood. Every Saturday and Sunday, uh, I was taken there because uh, they worked during the week. They worked very hard, and they didn't want to be bothered with a child around the house, I think. You know, it's, you can't blame them. They were very tired. So I was taken there in the morning and wait till the movie opened. They tried to uh, fit my foot, uh, my feet, Prints are there now, but I would try to, uh, you know, I never could get my feet in there. My feet were always too big. For 10 cents, I would go in, sit in the first row, and I watched all kinds of movies like Cleopatra with Claude Colbert. That I remembered very well. Born Norma Jean Mortensen at the Los Angeles County Hospital on June 1, 1926, Norma was born to a poor Midwestern transplant named Gladys Pearl Baker. Gladys was a film cutter, or editor as they're known today, at RKO Pictures when she gave birth to her third and final child. Gladys gave Norma the last name Mortensen, the surname of her second husband, from who she was separated and claimed she didn't know where he was. In reality, he'd been gone from Gladys's life for over a year and therefore could not be the father of Norma Jean. There is some belief that Charles Stanley Gifford, Gladys's boss, was Norma's biological father. Norma was baptized with the last name Baker by her grandmother in an attempt to hide the fact that Norma was conceived out of wedlock. Gladys would give Norma to a couple to foster her, whom were strictly religious. She paid the couple $25 a week and only saw Norma on the weekends for the next several years. When Norma was seven, Gladys managed to secure a home loan and purchased a small house in Hollywood. They didn't live alone there, keeping lodgers to help make ends meet. A year after they moved in, Gladys suffered a nervous breakdown and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, eventually committed to the Metropolitan State Hospital in Norwalk. 
Gladys would spend the rest of her life in and out of mental hospitals, rarely in contact with her daughter. Norma Jean entered the foster system. While never stable, Norma would claim she had a relatively happy childhood up until this point. This changed virtually overnight as what little stability she had evaporated. At her first foster home, where she stayed for about 16 months, she was sexually abused, leading to Norma becoming socially withdrawn and developing a stutter. She then went to stay with her mother's friend, Grace Goddard, whom took care of Norma's mother's affairs after the breakdown in summer 1935, and then with two other families. That fall, Grace placed her into an orphanage. Grace would eventually become Norma Jean's legal guardian in 1936, but Norma would stay in the orphanage until the summer of 1937. This stay with Grace was also brief, as her husband also molested Norma. This led to another string of temporary homes with Grace's friends and relatives in the Los Angeles area. All of this trauma is what led Norma Jean to acting. She would later claim in interviews that her bleak childhood gave her a love of, quote, playing house. She said that some of her foster parents would kick her out of the house and send her to the movies on the weekends. It was there Marilyn fell in love with the idea of becoming an actress. Norma continued bouncing around Grace's family, staying with an elderly aunt, before once again landing back with Grace in Van Nuys, where she started high school in 1941. The following year, Grace's husband was relocated to West Virginia. As a ward of the state of California, Norma would not be allowed to relocate with them. When it looked like she would have to return to the orphanage, Norma found a way out. This came in the form of her 21-year-old neighbor, James Doherty. Was she a good cook? Oh, yeah. She only had one problem. That was the time that my brother took all the labels off of the canned goods. <laughs> but she took it, she, you know, she was, a, she was a real good person, and she just laughed, and, and uh, we, we never knew what we was having for dinner. Every dinner was a surprise. <laughs> now, you say that uh, she didn't smoke or drink, and she really did, she worked hard around the house. James Doherty was the youngest of five children and a night shift worker at Lockheed Aircraft. He and Norma Jean married on June 19, 1942, a little over two weeks after she turned 16. Doherty was 21. Norma dropped out of high school to become a housewife, a job she found deadly boring. The following year, James enlisted in the Merchant Marines, and the couple relocated to Santa Catalina Island. James was shipped out in April 1944, where he pretty much remained for the better part of the next two years as World War II raged on. Norma moved in with her in-laws, where she began working for a munitions factory in Van Nuys. In late 1944, she didn't know it, but Norma's life was about to change forever. Photographer David Conover had been hired by the U.S. Army Air Force's 1st Motion Picture Unit to shoot a series of morale-boosting photographs of the female workers whom had joined the assembly line. While none of the photographs of the brunette bombshell were used in the eventual Yank magazine spread, David was struck with the young Norma asking to take further photographs of her. By this time, Norma Jean had already wanted to be a movie star. When David showed her the photographs he had taken of her, she was thrilled. Soon, she was modeling not only for David, but his friends as well. She quit the radio plane factory soon after in January 1945. Against her husband's wishes, she moved out of her in-law's home and signed with the Blue Book Model Agency by August 1945. Norma was typecast as a pinup and modeled mainly for ads in men's magazines. In her 18 months with the agency, she appeared on the cover of 33 different magazines. 
June 1946 saw the next phase of Norma's dreams coming true when she signed with an acting agency. The 20-year-old received tepid reactions from screen tests from both Paramount Pictures and 20th Century Fox, and Norma was eventually signed to the latter, as Daryl F. Zanuck, the head of Fox at the time, didn't want rival studio RKO to get her. Executive Ben Lyon, whom had given Norma the screen test, believed he had found the next Jean Harlow. Lyon was the one who would rechristen Norma Jean Baker to Marilyn Monroe. You know, it's interesting um, that people associate, um, if you happen to have blonde hair, you know, naturally or not naturally, however, um, or if you're not out of shape in some way, you're, you're absolutely dumb. I mean, you're considered dumb. I don't know why that is. It's very, I think it's a very limited view. It isn't true, so I'm sure. <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't matter what the person, mm -hmm. uh, what they look like, what color hair they have. Nonsense. Or if they uh, happen not to be out of shape. I mean, my time's to come. Gravity catches up with all of us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Slowly, but I'm afraid inexorably, if that's the right word. Because Fox wanted her unmarried, Marilyn filed for divorce from James Doherty in September 1946. James received the divorce papers while serving on the Yangtze River. After the divorce, he would continue to follow his former wife's career. Marilyn spent her first months at Fox learning how to act, sing, and dance. Her initial six-month contract was extended, and she was given her first film roles as a bit player. The studio also enrolled her in the Actors Laboratory Theater, which was an acting group that taught the techniques of Lee Strasberg and the group theater. This style of acting was derived from the Stanislavski method and soon became known as the American acting technique. Marilyn gained a reputation for being a hard worker throughout all of this training, but Fox still feared she was too shy to become an actress, leading to a lapse in her Fox contract. During this time, she returned to modeling and worked odd jobs at different film studios. Undeterred, Marilyn continued studying at the Actors Lab. She networked and made friends who could get her name into the papers. She also began a casual relationship with Joseph M. Shank at Fox, whom convinced Harry Cohn, the head of Columbia, to sign her in March 1948. Columbia set to work changing Marilyn to look more like Rita Hayworth. The first step was to dye her hair platinum blonde. She would make one film under her contract at Columbia, Ladies of the Chorus, in 1948, which was not successful and her contract was not renewed. Once again without a studio contract, Marilyn once again took to modeling. It was during this period that she took her infamous nudes, the ones of her posing seductively on bolts of red silk, for a John Bumgarth calendar. She also began a relationship both professionally and very much not so, with Johnny Hyde, the president of William Morris Agency. It was through this relationship that Marilyn got small roles in All About Eve and The Asphalt Jungle, which were both released in 1950. The latter performance gained her a small amount of critical acclaim, enough for Hyde to negotiate her a seven-year contract that landed her back at 20th Century Fox. It was one of the last things Hyde would ever do, as he died of a heart attack within the week. Marilyn was devastated. This tenure at Fox was vastly different from the last one. Marilyn had roles in several moderately successful comedies that her biographer, Donald Spotto, described used her as a sexy ornament. This didn't seem to matter as the critics loved her. But, you know, they were mostly dudes back then, so not surprising. 
Audiences loved her too and sent her thousands of weekly fan letters. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association named her the best young box office personality in February 1952. Marilyn's nude photos came to light in March 1952. Instead of denying them, she and Fox decided to be upfront and cooked up a story around the images. She had to shoot those photographs. She was broke at the time. This story, coupled with Marilyn's cool demeanor at a press conference, during which time she told one reporter the only thing she had on was the radio, gained Marilyn a slew of public interest. Fox released three of her films to capitalize on this press. Now minted as a full-blown sex symbol, the actress wished to show off more of her acting range. She began further studying her craft, including method acting, and garnered some mild praise for roles such as the troubled babysitter in the film Clash by Night. Despite this, Marilyn continued being cast in roles that highlighted her more physical attributes. For example, in the film We're Not Married, a role was specifically created for Marilyn to appear in a bathing suit. With her star very much established, Marilyn got a reputation for being difficult to work with, a standing that would progress throughout her career. The once diligent worker would be late to set if she showed up at all, didn't remember her lines, and was notorious for asking for multiple takes until she was satisfied with her performance. She relied heavily on her acting coaches, which pissed off her directors. All of this led to bullying by her male co-stars and directors. The truth was, Marilyn suffered from extreme stage fright, anxiety, and found her lack of control on set dissatisfactory. To combat this, as well as her chronic insomnia, she began relying on barbiturates, amphetamines, and alcohol to help her sleep. She would become severely addicted by 1956. Despite all of this, 1953 would be the biggest year of her career yet. Her role as a femme fatale scheming to kill her husband in Niagara would give her all kinds of attention, both good and bad, including a pretty sizable protest from women's clubs whom called the film immoral. It was on this film that the stereotypic Marilyn look was developed. The dark eyebrows, pale skin, red lips, and of course the beauty mark. The opinions of these fringe groups hardly scathed her, as the public at large continued their love affair with Marilyn. She followed Niagara with Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which became one of the biggest films of the year. How to Marry a Millionaire came soon after, which did even better. At the end of 1953, and then again in 1954, Marilyn was listed on the top 10 money-making stars of the year. During all of this, in her private life, Marilyn quietly dated several men, including Elia Kazan and Peter Lawford. In early 1952, however, she met a retired New York Yankee named Joe DiMaggio. I met him the year he retired, and uh, I saw him for about year and a half, two years, and we married in San Francisco. He understood some things about me, and I understood some things about him, and we based our marriage on it. Joe DiMaggio was a recently retired center fielder for the New York Yankees, a three-time MVP, and an all-star player for all of his 13 years. Not too shabby for this son of Italian immigrants. According to her autobiography, Marilyn originally didn't want to meet him, believing he would be just another arrogant athlete. Instead, she found him as a, quote, reserved guy who didn't make a pass at me right away. 
probably something new for the woman lauded mostly for her looks. The two struck up a long-distance relationship, with Marilyn mostly on the West Coast and DiMaggio on the East. While the press commented extensively about the apparent mismatch, the two were in love and eloped at the San Francisco City Hall on January 14, 1954, the second marriage for both of them. Marilyn was 28, DiMaggio was 40. Despite being one of the biggest stars on the 20th Century Fox lot, Marilyn was being paid far less than the other stars that were at her caliber, and she was not allowed to pick her projects. Daryl Zanuck blocked all attempts for her to get the role she wanted, thinking that people would not pay to see her in a dramatic part. Another reason he did this was that Zanuck didn't really like her. Spiriscorus, the owner of Fox at this time, then decided that Fox should focus on entertainment factor only, canceling all dramatic films for the foreseeable future. In January 1954, Marilyn was suspended when she refused to shoot yet another musical comedy for the studio. Newly married, Marilyn left for Japan on a part honeymoon, part business trip. To gain positive press after her suspension, she then traveled to Korea to perform in a USO show for 60,000 Marines. She returned to the States where she settled her beef with Fox, whom gave her a shiny new contract, a $100,000 bonus, and a starring role as The Girl in the Seven Year Itch. The film began shooting in September 1954. Though taking place in New York, the film was shot in Hollywood, but a promotional shoot was set up in Manhattan, which created the iconic image of Marilyn standing on the steam grate, her dress billowing up. While Marilyn's career was exploding, her marriage was imploding. Joe DiMaggio was reportedly jealous, controlling, and physically abusive. He wanted a housewife, not a movie star. He was on set during Marilyn's steam grate shoot and was enraged by what he saw. According to Marilyn, he was, quote, disgusted that she'd agreed to do it. This led to a huge row between the two on set. And when they returned home to Hollywood the following month, Marilyn filed for divorce after only nine months of marriage, citing mental cruelty. While no longer together, this would not be the last time DiMaggio would play an important part in her life and legacy. I mean, I know certain qualities uh, that I remembered at the time, but <clears throat> I don't know exactly what... Uh, I think that's uh, mysterious. No, I can't say he gave me a feeling of security. There wasn't any reason for him to, really, except uh, he treated me as a human being, and he was... Um, <clears throat> very sensitive human being and treated me, treated me as a sensitive person also. Sick of doing the same song and dance in film after film after film, Marilyn moved to New York and founded the Marilyn Monroe Productions with photographer and on-again, off-again lover Milton Green. Marilyn had recently been freed from her Fox contract after they'd failed to pay her agreed-upon bonuses. This move to start her own company, as well as the now weakened studio system, would be one of the final nails in its coffin. Marilyn was lampooned in the press for this decision, even parodied in a play starring Jane Mansfield. They didn't believe that this quote-unquote dumb blonde could run her own company. Also while in New York, she continued studying acting at the actor's studio, growing close to Lee Strasberg and his family, and she replaced her former acting coaches for lessons in the Strasberg home. In October 1955, 
Marilyn began a quiet affair with playwright Arthur Miller, which grew in intensity after Marilyn's divorce was finalized and Miller left his wife. The two had met nearly five years earlier through Elia Kazan, whom Marilyn was seeing at the time. Kazan asked Arthur to take Marilyn to a party, and that evening he was apparently a perfect gentleman. Marilyn believed this indicated his respect for her, which was more than enough to make him stand out from other men she knew. He was also married at this time, and if the bar for righteous men back then was as low as, thank goodness this married man and friend of my boyfriend didn't make a pass at me, so he must be a good one, then I guess I'll stick to the modern online dating scene. Marilyn later told a friend of the encounter, quote, it was like running into a tree, you know, like a cool drink when you've had a fever. Fox, whom had made another new deal with Marilyn to return to contract with them, something she agreed to as her new production company could not finance films alone, wanted her to end things with Miller. He was in the middle of being investigated during the HUAC trials and accused of being a communist. Marilyn refused to end the relationship and stuck by her man, which led to the FBI starting a file on her. Arthur was not a communist, but he had been to a few communist party meetings. The modern day equivalency in Hollywood now would be like going to a Scientology audit, but not paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to find out the entire religion hinges on a space alien named Xenu. Anyway, Marilyn's devotion was an oasis for Arthur, as it was hard to get the public to turn against a man whom had won the heart of one of America's sweethearts. Arthur was found in contempt of court, which eventually would be overturned on appeal. His play, The Crucible, would be based on the HUAC trials. Marilyn's new Fox contract, worth $400,000, would secure her for four more Fox films. She would be allowed to choose the project, her director, and cinematographers. She would also be free to make one film with Marilyn Monroe Productions per each completed film for Fox. The announcement of this new deal was made in early 1956 and cemented Marilyn's recognition as a businesswoman. The 29-year-old began this new deal with the production of Bus Stop, which allowed the actress a departure from playing ditzy blondes. She played Cherie, a saloon singer whose dreams of stardom are complicated by a naive cowboy who falls in love with her. For the role, she learned an Ozark accent, chose costumes and makeup that lacked the glamour of her earlier films, and provided deliberately mediocre singing and dancing to complement her character. Soon after wrapping on bus stop, Marilyn married Arthur Miller in a Jewish ceremony on June 29, 1956 in New York. Variety, an entertainment trade paper, claimed the marriage was a mismatch. Egghead weds hourglass, they claimed. Marilyn would say that this was the first time she had ever truly been in love. Bus Stop was released in August of 1956 to critical acclaim, the role landing her a Golden Globe nomination. Shortly after Miller and Marilyn were married, the couple flew to London so Marilyn could begin work on the film The Prince and the Showgirl with Laurence Olivier. The film was also a Marilyn Monroe production co-production. If you've seen the film My Week with Marilyn, you have a semi-fictionalized account of what happened on this set. The production was complicated by conflicts between Olivier, whom was also directing, and Marilyn. Olivier had angered her with the patronizing statement, quote, all you have to do is be sexy, and demanded she replicate Vivian Lee's stage interpretation of the character. He also disliked the constant presence of Paula Strasberg, Marilyn's acting coach, on set. 
In retaliation, Marilyn became uncooperative and began to deliberately arrive late to set, stating later that, quote, if you don't respect your artists, they can't work well. While on her downtime from set, Marilyn found notes that Arthur had been making about her. The exact words she read are unknown, but they apparently mentioned that he was disappointed by their marriage and sometimes found her embarrassing. She told Lee and Paula Strasberg about what he'd written, saying, quote, how he thought I was some kind of angel, but now he guessed he was wrong, that his first wife had let him down, but I had done something worse. She had idealized Arthur and was devastated, viewing this as a betrayal. Also during this time, Marilyn, whom suffered from endometriosis, suffered a miscarriage as her pharmaceutical dependency raged on. Somehow, The Prince and the Showgirl got completed to tepid reviews stateside, but the film did get some critical acclaim in Europe. Marilyn, now in her early 30s, took an 18-month break from Hollywood, deciding to focus on being a wife instead. She and Arthur spent their time between Hollywood, New York, and Connecticut. Marilyn returned to Hollywood in 1958 to star in Some Like It Hot with Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon. She considered the role of Sugar Cane another dumb blonde, but accepted it due to Miller's encouragement and the offer of 10% of the film's profits on top of her standard pay. This shoot made anything that happened on the Prince and the Showgirl production look like a cakewalk. Marilyn demanded dozens of retakes and did not remember her lines or act as directed. Tony Curtis famously stated that kissing her was, quote, like kissing Hitler due to her behavior on set. Marilyn herself privately compared shooting this film to a sinking ship and commented on her co-stars and director, saying, quote, Why should I worry? I have no phallic symbol to lose. Her and director Billy Wilder battled on the betrayal of the character as well, leading to Marilyn purposely blowing takes to get her way in the edit room. At the end of the day, Wilder was happy with Monroe's performance and stated, quote, Anyone can remember lines, but it takes a real artist to come on set and not know her lines and yet give the performance she did. I'm pretty sure that's the definition of a left-handed compliment. Some Like It Hot, when it was released in March 1959, was a critical and financial smash, leading to Marilyn winning a Golden Globe for Best Actress. After a brief break, Marilyn set to work on the film Let's Make Love, as she was behind on her work for her Fox contract. Arthur was hired to punch up the script. Marilyn's bad habits on set amplified, leading to delays in the production. During this time, she also had an affair with her co-star, Yves Montand. Fox used the affair in promoting the film, but despite the furor whipped up over the film's content and the affair, the film was not terribly successful upon its initial release. The next film Marilyn completed would be her last. In The Misfits, she betrayed a newly divorced woman in the Nevada desert whom befriends three aging cowboys. The desert heat proved difficult for Marilyn, and the fact that her marriage to Arthur Miller was pretty much kaput didn't help matters either. Arthur had written the script for The Misfits, and Marilyn was reportedly furious that the character she played was partially based on herself. During the shoot, the actress also suffered from gallstones and her addiction to barbiturates and alcohol had reached its apex. It became standard for her makeup to be applied while she was still unconscious. Filming eventually had to be halted so she could spend a week detoxing in a hospital. She continued battling with Arthur and their marriage was over before the filming even wrapped. She said at one point that she disliked the script and that, quote, Arthur said it's his movie. I don't think he even wants me in it. It's all over. We have to stay with each other because it would be bad for the film if we split up now. 
Despite all of these issues, John Huston, the director, praised her performance in the film. The Misfits was a commercial and critical failure at the time of its release, and Marilyn obtained a quick Mexican divorce from Arthur on January 20th, 1961, hoping that the inauguration of JFK would overshadow the divorce in the press. In January 1964, Miller's play After the Fall would premiere in New York. One character, Maggie, had the same background, mannerisms, and self-destructive habits of Marilyn. Despite the character being a singer, she was obviously based on her, with her portrayer even donning a blonde wig. Arthur was lambasted for turning Marilyn and her issues into material for a play, though he denied any connection. This would not be the last time he would do this either, as he included characters with links to Marilyn in other works, including the 2004 play Finishing the Picture, which was based on the chaotic shoot of The Misfits. He clearly never got over his time as the husband of Marilyn Monroe. Arthur would not attend Marilyn's funeral, stating, She won't be there. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Happy birthday to you. Marilyn spent the first half of 1961 dealing with her litany of health issues. The lifelong battle with endometriosis led to the actress needing her gallbladder removed. She then spent four weeks in a hospital for her depression. She was eventually sprung from the hospital by none other than Joe DiMaggio, and the two rekindled a friendship. She even dated DiMaggio's friend, Frank Sinatra. Marilyn traded the East Coast for the West, returning to Hollywood in late 1961. She purchased a house in Brentwood not long after. By the spring of 1962, Marilyn was back in the public eye and ready to work. She began shooting Something's Got to Give for Fox. Days before filming was about to shoot, however, she came down with sinusitis and was too sick to work for the next six weeks. Despite pushback from Fox and a claim that she was faking being sick, Marilyn took a break from shooting on May 19, 1962, to sing happy birthday to JFK at his birthday bash at Madison Square Garden, which, needless to say, pissed off Fox. Okay, so if you've never listened to this podcast before and came here out of curiosity regarding the Kennedy thing, here you go. Keep in mind that a lot of this is based on third-person accounts, and I'm not going to dive into any conspiracy theories. Marilyn's biographers have figured out the first confirmed time the two would have been in the same room together, which was back in April 1957 at the April in Paris Ball at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. They both attended with their respective spouses at the time. While both photographed at the event, there is no photographic or anecdotal proof of the two meeting that night. The biographers surmise the two likely met at a dinner party in 1961, hosted by actor Peter Lawford. Lawford was married to JFK's sister, whom Marilyn was friends with. Biographer Donald Spotto guesses that the relationship wouldn't have turned physical until the following year, in March 1962. Marilyn's masseur and close friend Ralph Roberts told Spotto that he received a call from the actress asking him for massage techniques for muscles of the back and that he, quote, heard a distinctive Boston accent in the background before Marilyn handed the phone to none other than President Kennedy. 
Ralph then added, quote, Marilyn told me that this night in March was the only time of her affair with JFK. A great many people thought after that weekend that there was more to it. Marilyn gave me the impression that it was not a major event for either of them. It happened once that weekend, and that was that. Spado also wrote in his book, Marilyn Monroe, The Biography, that, quote, no serious biographer can maintain the existence between Marilyn and the Kennedys. All we can say for sure is that the actress and the president have met four times between October 1961 and August 1962, and it was during one of those meetings that they called to a friendly relation of Marilyn from a bedroom. Shortly after, Marilyn confided the sexual relation to her close relatives, insisting about the fact that their affair ended there. Scandalous for the era, sure, but hardly the stuff of legend that some people hold it to today. With Marilyn's constant illnesses causing delays in production, coupled with the insanity we talked about last week involving the production of Cleopatra, Fox decided that they could not afford to have yet another film running severely behind schedule. Fox fired Marilyn from the film and sued her for $750,000 in damages. When co-star Dean Martin refused to work with anyone but Marilyn, Fox sued him too and shut down the entire production. The studio dragged the actress in the press for her behavior and claimed that she was mentally Mentally disturbed. Powerful people don't do that in the press anymore, right? Immediately regretting this move, and let's face it, it probably wasn't a good idea trying to sue two of the most popular stars of the era. Fox renegotiated with Marilyn in June, giving her a new contract for the film and the promise of a second soon after. She would not live to see autumn of that year. Well, I find it very stimulating to keep studying and working. Um... Uh, but I'm not just generally happy. If I'm generally anything, I guess I'm generally miserable. <laughs> <laughs> On the morning of August 5th, 1962, Marilyn's housekeeper, Eunice Murray, had awoken in the middle of the night sensing that something was off. Eunice attempted to enter Marilyn's bedroom, but found it to be locked. She immediately called Marilyn's psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Greenson, whom upon arrival broke into the bedroom through a window to discover Marilyn's lifeless body. Her physician, Dr. Hyman Engelberg, arrived around 3.50 in the morning, almost an hour after Eunice had awoken, and pronounced Marilyn dead. The LAPD was not called until 4.25 a.m. Marilyn's autopsy revealed that her death was due to barbiturate poisoning. Based on the sheer amount of drugs in her body, it was believed that this was no accident as she was several times over the lethal limit. Due to Marilyn's history of depression, which had flared up after Something's Gotta Give was completely put on pause, coupled with the fact that she'd overdosed before, and lack of any signs of foul play led to the death being considered a probable suicide. Her sudden tragic death was international news, and one source claimed that the suicide rate in Los Angeles doubled after her death. Marilyn was laid to rest at the Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery on August 8th. Joe DiMaggio placed a 20-year order with a florist, ensuring that roses were placed on her grave three times a week. Of course, there are a slew of conspiracy theories circling around whether or not she killed herself or if the Kennedys were somehow involved, so much so that her case was reopened in 1982, but no credible foul play has ever been found. If you want to read up on the conspiracy theories, they're not hard to find, but this is not the place for that kind of speculation. 
Marilyn Monroe, the little girl who dreamed of being an actress, became so much more. She became an international immortal icon. Through her films, she attempted to show that she was not just another empty-headed blonde, but a woman with thoughts, feelings, and dreams. While we never got to see the full breadth of what she was capable of, her legacy is sure to endure for generations to come. Uh, do I feel happy in life? Um... Um, let's see. Let's say I hope I'm finding happiness. Right? Well, for me, uh, if I can realize certain things in my work, uh, I come the closest to being happy. And I can say that also about my life. Well, it only happens, I think, in moments, sometimes when I'm working, and, uh, and I'll be able to um, uh, fulfill a scene truthfully. And then I think I'm the happiest. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. Think of it as my virtual starving artist tip jar. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the life and loves of the king of Hollywood. I'm talking, of course, about Clark Gable. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Didn't you just love the picture? I did, but I just felt so sorry for the creature at the end. Sorry for the creature? What'd you want him, to marry the girl? He was kind of scary looking, but he wasn't really all bad. I think he just craved a little affection, you know, a sense of being loved and needed and wanted.